Welcome back to Trending in Education. Dan Strapper, Brandon Jones, Michael Palmer with you. And this week, Mike sits down to talk to Rohit Bargava, the author of The Non-Obvious. Uh, Mike, uh, a book you uh, was a, you were able to read last year in 2017. You were able to talk to Rohit then, talk to him again this year. A great conversation. Uh, what would you want someone first listening to this conversation, haven't read The Non-Obvious, to know about Rohit or how he goes about constructing this book and, and what you got out of it? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so Rohit's an interesting guy. He's been doing this, uh, I guess about five or six years, uh, comes out of advertising and management consulting, uh, and, uh, considers himself a trend curator. So like he's trying to identify trends that are, uh, are just starting to take off now. He views trends as the accelerating present. So like things that are moving faster than other things, uh, and things that actually apply across industries. Um, and he puts together this book every year. This is the 2018 uh, non-obvious uh, trend book. Uh, grades himself on the previous year, which is something uh, as uh, aspiring trendsters ourselves, I think we're looking to do that with our own predictions, which we just covered uh, last week. Um, so he spends a good amount of time in his process, uh, talks about the trends that are happening in uh, 2018, and then uh, grades himself on his performance for the previous year, uh, and he's really established quite a brand for himself uh, with that and uh, has been uh, really gracious with his time on the show. And I think we're uh, we're of similar minds around tracking trends and understanding what we can learn on that front. And uh, Brandon, one of the things uh, I saw you did last week where you, you really went after uh, some portmanteaus, some uh, uh, naming of your trends. Was Rohit a muse for you in constructing your own trends here in 2018? Yeah, I think so. I think Rohit does a good job at a lot of things. And I think that's one of the things that's, um, for me personally, I find most interesting. Um, if it's one of the things, I suppose it's technically more interesting, but uh, he does a good job of that. I think that, you know, Mike used the language hook last week in, in talking about kid solving. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I think the hook matters. Like if something is pithy and memorable, uh, maybe a little non-obvious itself, even in its naming, I think that that makes it um, it, it may, may, may not make the trend itself more, uh, real. It just makes it more memorable. And I think that's an important part of, of what he does. Uh, I think that the, uh, so can I, can I say, can I, can I talk about this, this book, this, this, Please my do. experience, Please this do, because we would have loved to have have you in on the, interview. I know, but guess what? I was turfed from the interview. You know why? Because we were... I lost the advanced copy of Rohit's book. <laughs> Rohit, thank you. You've been very gracious. You sent us a couple more copies. Um, but I was reading it. I was really enjoying it. I was reading it on a flight back from Iowa City. You've it's probably a, heard me talk about this. It's a great plane read. It is a great plane read um, for only one leg of your uh, – I was hobbling uh, only on one leg uh, since I left it in a, um, a Wolfgang Puck uh, oh. restaurant. That's, it was not a restaurant. It was like a, it was like a like an airport version. An airport version. Um, I had gotten a, a chicken salad, and sure. then I was having having a beverage or two, and and I, I was reading the book, and I, I left it there. So, yeah. what I, I got to read through all of the trends and his trends. I think you'll talk to him about some of them, uh -huh. um, but they're again fun and interesting, and I think I think right on. What I didn't get to do mm. was either a be invited to the interview because I was I was turfed, or b get to see his score again. I would have I would have loved to have talked to him. Oh my god. Him. Did this guy go to Harvard? I feel like there's so much great inflation. Wow. I love Rohit. Rohit, I love you. I, yeah, I, we, sure. we heart you, Rohit. Sure. But of his 15, 2017 trends, yeah. he gives himself 12 A's and three A minuses. I think he had a good year in 17. Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying, at least. Got it. His yeah. 2016, also real good. <laughs> <laughs> his 2016, I think he gets one B. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. So that was uh, maybe two B's. Uh, or not two B's, three B's. Uh, but I, I thought that was um, that was very interesting in, yeah. in going back. Uh, I mean, I said it last week that we're going to find ways to make us go six percent. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't blame you, Rohit. Yeah. One of my favorite things, Mike, that uh, Rohit does is uh, looks at the counter trends. You know, looks yeah. at the the swing back, and I think it's something we've done fairly well on here. But something I'm I'm very interested here in 2018 to do more and more. Sort of look at where trends are going, but how they swing back. It, the conversation last year and this year, I think, uh, was a good one in just uh, hearing your sort of thought process as well. Anything really intriguing about how he goes about constructing this book that struck you, or anything that uh, you want people to listen to more intently about how he goes about making these non-obvious trends uh, the focus of his book? 
Um, he's got a nice breakdown of his process, which uh, which involves just sort of stepping outside of your normal um, routines and trying to understand other people's perspectives, which honestly is kind of an obvious thing to think about. Uh, but I think uh, the he does some obvious things to come up with the non-obvious trends. Um, and I thought that was actually great. And it's something, um, you know, I've sort of made a point of trying to find sources. And this comes up a lot, particularly in the 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 post-truth era that we're in, we get into it a little bit in our conversation, but um, it's important to find sources outside of your comfort zone, outside of what you typically consume, uh, particularly if you want to get tuned into broader trends that are maybe outside of your own um, insular world. So a lot to, we get into it. Now there's a lot to kind of dig into, I think, uh, should you pick up a copy of the book? Um, But but yeah, I think there's a lot to learn there. And it's also nice to find kindred spirits out there. I think we're not the only uh, trend trackers out there and uh we'd love to find more folks like rohit to uh to bring in and uh pick up the conversation with brandon uh and others yeah maybe if i if i keep the book this time i'll be able to make it for next year but i I do think and obviously this is based this is sort of this is obvious not non-obvious based on the show and how we how we engage with it but i think thinking about where things are going help you understand where things are like trying to be present of mind in seeing and looking for trends whether or not you're good at it, and I think that Rohit is, is actually good at it, he's, he's certainly practiced and has a good methodology, um, whether you are a trend spotter with real experience or you're, uh, you know, you're doing this for the first time, I think just the very act of thinking about it is, is actually really generative uh, and really, really helpful. So um, uh, I would recommend checking out this book. And, or let me, to be, to be very honest, I'd recommend reading at least the first half of this book. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And continuing to listen right now. Yes, indeed. It is time to hear this interview. Mike and Rohit break down the book. Uh, a great interview. Hope you stay tuned. Uh, enjoy it. Let us know on Twitter what you think at Trending and Ed. And we'll discuss more as uh, we move forward here in 2018 on Trending and Education. So we're here with uh, Rohit Bargava, from the founder of the non-obvious company, uh, adjunct professor at uh, Georgetown University, and uh, all-around nice guy uh, <laughs> and friend of the show. And uh, very happy to have you here with us, Rohit. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, we wanted to talk about trends. Uh, we've talked previously on the show about how uh, January is trend month. Yes. So it's a time to look ahead at the year. And I know that uh, hot off the presses, we have uh, the non-obvious companies uh, trends for 2018. There's a book uh, that I had the the pleasure of reading that I know uh, you're, you're here to talk about a little bit. Um, What are your thoughts on the year ahead? Like what's uh, top of mind uh, what's, what's going on in your world? What's got your attention in terms of trends for 2018? Yeah, I spend, uh, so it's funny you mentioned January's trend month. Every month it's trend month for me. I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, I spend a lot of time spotting patterns, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and trying to make meaning out of those. And so every year there's this new report and it's got 15 new trends. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a couple things that we're really watching this year. I mean, one is just... Um, how media is shaping the way that we see the world and mm-hmm. what we believe. Um, <clears throat> and I think what's, uh, what's interesting about that is there's a couple trends from the new report, and I know we'll get into the, the trends sure. um, maybe now, maybe later. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a couple trends that talk about this idea that it's harder to be believable mm-hmm. and people are very skeptical. And um, everything that we see in media kind of factors into that, whether it's the fake news or just this idea of people getting bombarded with, with ads in many different ways um, and platforms like Facebook trying to find ways to minimize that um, and brands just trying harder <laughs> to reach you in different ways. Yep. So if there's a macro trend around that, it's really this idea of a crisis of believability. Mm-hmm. And it shows up in many of the trends that we found this year mm-hmm. uh, because it really impacts why we believe some people and not others, um, how companies are going to market to us, uh, what sort of uh, things we need to do when we're thinking about going for our next job. Yep. Um, and, and also, you know, if we're in school right now, like what do we need to think about to be believable ourselves, right? Because mm-hmm. we all want to be trusted. We all want to be believable. Right. And the rules for how to do that today, I think, are different. Right, right. And I think you touched on that in a couple of your, 
couple of your trends. I, I remember you were talking about truthing and, um, uh, you know, sort of how we're in a, a post-truth era in some ways where, <laughs> uh, where folks are questioning all of their news sources, all their information sources. And I think in terms of the, the truthing trend, um, you were talking that people were really looking more to um, validate through people they know and through sort of direct connection with. Yeah. With people others. they know um, things they can experience mm -hmm. in the real world. Yep. Um, and uh, not things that they see through media. Right. Um, and that's a, that's definitely a, a macro sort of thing that has uh, come about. I mean, in particular over the last year, just because of, you know, the change in power and sure. Trump becoming president. I mean, it's become like even more urgent in your face. Right. And it's not really a partisan thing. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just everybody's struggling with like, what do I believe? Right. Who do I believe? Yep. And, um, and that kind of latent voice in the back of all our heads saying, I can't believe that that person believes that. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Totally. So it's like, we don't understand each other either. Right. And that's a major problem because right. uh, we don't have empathy for somebody who disagrees with us. Sure. We just automatically assume they're an idiot and move on with our lives. Right. And that's not really a great way to have a culture. Sure. Yeah. And related to that, like, so we've been tracking, uh, one of the trends we've been looking at more in education is digital citizenship, mm -hmm. which is basically teaching predominantly K-12, although it extends really throughout your life course, how do we equip uh, learners with the right toolkit to be able to assess what's a valid source versus an invalid source? Where should they get their information? How, right. do, they, how do they tap into um, new skills, I guess, that help us discern the veracity of a particular source uh, in yeah, a world. It's, um, you know, it, it does. Uh, it sounds like a lot of hard work, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when someone says that to you, you're like, am I really going to do all this research just right. to find out if, you know, the, the Patriots actually cheated or not? You know, right. like who, who's going to do all that work? Like, yeah. You're just going to think what you think. Like, right. that's it, right? Right. Um, but one of the things that I teach to my students and also that I talk to executives about is simple ways to get outside of your own media bubble. Mm-hmm. And one of those ways is whenever I'm going through an airport, I always pick up a magazine that's not targeted to me. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, I get outside of my own worldview because I'll pick up, you know, Teen Vogue magazine, which is for 16-year-old girls, which I'm not. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. But I'll pick it up because it'll teach me something about someone else. Sure. Right? Um, or a book about a magazine about sailing. Right? I've never gone sailing. Right. Um, that, I think, is, is intent. <clears throat> and I think we have to try and get outside of ourselves a little more. Yeah. And another trend you talk about is virtual empathy. And you've mentioned <laughs> empathy as well, which is something uh, we're certainly interested in when we talk about socio-emotional learning and how to sort of teach people how to empathize better. Um, and yeah. like... Virtual empathy is interesting because it's a, a blend of sort of the new media angle of virtual reality and then the desire uh, of all, like the, the need that we have to understand how to empathize in new ways. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because empathy seems very central to your approach, even what you were just describing. Like, how do you how do we empathize better with people whose profiles are very mm -hmm. different from ours? You know, you you adopt techniques to help you identify trends by empathizing in new ways. But can you talk a little more broadly just about the importance of empathy to your process and to understanding trends? Yeah, I think a lot of us might hear the word empathy and think, oh, well, I mean, that's for psychologists or you know, a certain mm -hmm. type of person. Um, but empathy, I, I think at its base level is just about appreciating someone for who they are instead of trying to make them someone else. Mm -hmm. um, it's about understanding that there are people who think differently than you mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't make them wrong. Right. And when you think about virtual empathy, I mean, if you've experienced a virtual reality, so any of your listeners who've tried on those goggles and had that experience, I mean, maybe it was a weird experience. Maybe it didn't quite work properly. Right. But there are these experiences where you can put on this headset and you can be a refugee in the middle of a refugee camp mm -hmm. or a prisoner in solitary confinement 
or a cow in a field being led to the slaughter. I mean, these are real virtual reality experiences. Yes. And when you have those, you understand that situation in a way that's vastly different than watching a documentary or reading about it or seeing photos or even hearing someone describe it mm -hmm. because you are that experience. Right. You are the refugee. You are the cow. Right. And that's transformative for your empathy in a way that really nothing else is. Mm -hmm. And so there's a real power in that technology to take us outside of ourselves and be someone else, really be someone else. Because mm -hmm. what you see all around you, 360 degrees, is a different view. Yeah. Yeah. And I know virtual empathy, I think you've tracked it for the last couple of years too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So some of these trends, uh, it's interesting. Um, there's 15 trends published every year. Mm -hmm. uh, five of those are actually predictions from past years. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing this report with my team for the last eight years. Right. So every year there's 15 trends. So you can do the math. I mean, there's more than a hundred trends. Sure. And so we're continually tracking them because we don't just want to put trends out there and say, you know, of course we're always right. Right. Um, that's right. not really uh, truthful. Sure. So there's a whole appendix at the back of every year's book that grades the trends based on how well they did over time. Did yes. they actually come true? So we don't pretend like we're always right. Right. We have transparency. And as part of that, one of the things we find is some of the trends we predicted at some point, like virtual empathy, mm -hmm. a couple of years later, they become even more impactful, but maybe they turn in a direction we didn't expect. Yes. And virtual empathy was kind of like that because when we first wrote about it, it was all about virtual reality. Right. And this year, when we brought it back, it was only partially about technology. Mm -hmm. And it was also about having transformative experiences, like in the real world, yes. where you could get empathy through those. You're right, right, right. Because I did see that there were a few interesting counter trends that you were talking about. Like, I, I think we did talk last time you were on the show about almost the, the Newtonian nature of trends. And you're, as the non-obvious company, you're frequently looking for the counter trend. So like when something is more in the prevailing consciousness, we all think, ah, virtual reality is a big deal. But frequently the trend that, the, that you'll seize onto is not so much the primary trend, but more the reaction. And I, and yeah. I do think in the case of the virtual, uh, something we've been tracking more on the show lately is uh, screen addiction and the attention economy. The evolution of virtual empathy out of, I'm going to put a visor on and see what it feels like to be a cow to more like maybe be out in the field, you know, like on right, all fours, right, yeah. actually feeling it as an experience. Is that, that sort of the evolution of the trend that you're talking about? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, we do try and, I mean, you know, the title of the book is non-obvious. So right. there's, there's a decent amount of pressure to actually come up with a point of view that people haven't heard everywhere else. Correct. Yep. And so, you know, one of the examples I think from the latest trend report is, you know, we still hear the business world talking about big data. Mm-hmm. And uh, we hear all these stories about how all this data is being collected and it's being used for all these different purposes. And they know, they know, they, you know, mm -hmm. the, the big, they sure <laughs> know everything about us. Yeah. Uh, and the trend that, that we wrote about this year was something we called data pollution. Mm -hmm. And it was really about how uh, there's become so much data that it's clouding everything else, just like pollution in the air kind right. of, you know, crowds out clean air and, and makes it tough to breathe. Sure. And the question was, in a world where there's so much data pollution, right. how do you figure out what really matters? How mm -hmm. do you figure out what is useful to collect? Yeah. Because a lot of us are now like we're wearing these things on our wrist that are capturing all sorts of data about us. I mean, I recently went and I spoke in an event in Disney and they have that magic band. Uh-huh. And we were in the park kind of late and, you know, we were talking about how, you know, like, uh, how do they know if we've left the park? And then we all kind of looked at our magic bands and we're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> now we know how, how they Everything know. Everything is tracked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but you know, like, what do you do with all of that data, right? I mean, do you take, for example, like if you wear a, a Fitbit or one mm -hmm. of those watches, do you take that data and give it to your doctor right. to, you know, impact your healthcare? Probably not. Right. So we're collecting all this data, but we don't actually know what to do with it. Right. We don't know how to use it. We don't know how to leverage it. Yeah. And I mean, that'll start to work itself out over time. Sure. But right now we're in the midst of just data basically being like pollution. Right. And I, 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 you know, I, that was, 
Yeah, and I thought that turn of phrase uh, definitely resonated with me. And I know that's something we did talk about uh, when we spoke last time, like the level of uh, craftsmanship around your language, around the trends, I think is definitely uh, inspirational as someone who loves language. Uh, but also I think- <laughs> That's probably my English major coming back. <laughs> perhaps, yeah, and the, the Georgetown uh, pedigree, but, um, and Ogilvy. But um, like, I do think there is something to be said for- um, not uh, not going too far in terms of accepting the primary story. And the primary narrative is in this beautiful tomorrow we're living in, data, big data and data science will provide answers to all of our questions that may in fact be true in the fullness of time. But right now I'm very much struck, it reminds me of uh, Nate Silver's book, uh, The Signal and the Noise, the amount of noise that we're all living within in our modern lives is almost deafening to the point that even if there is value in big data, getting at that value when you're just bombarded with extraneous information and the amount of stuff that can be tracked, um, it can be a little bit overwhelming. And it's interesting for us as a learning company, like we're trying to understand how much data do our learners wanna get and how do we feed them just the information that they need to get the most out of their learning experience? Um, so I think the, the sort of cautionary note around data pollution, um, I thought was an interesting one. Um, I know that you did specifically call out, I think there's a, there's a, series, there's a handful of your trends, uh, all 15, by the way, the uh, 2018 books available now on Amazon. Uh, if people want a copy of the book, they could just search for non-obvious 2018 and it would, it would come up. up. It would yeah. show up. Yeah. So, uh, right. yeah. so it definitely would, would recommend that. But I, I do know among your 15 trends, you group them into five categories. I do. Yes. One of which is learning and media or education and media. Yes. Um, so we I was, I don't think the um, data pollution necessarily landed within the learning the education and media uh, set, but um, but I would like to understand a little better at a macro level, thinking about all your trends, mm -hmm. what do you think is most relevant? You know, the, the title of this podcast is Trending in Education. Like, yes. what among those pod, uh, sorry, those, uh, those trends uh, do you think are most relevant to, uh, to learning? Yeah, so there was one in um, the media and education category that I called Lightspeed Learning. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because the, the opening story in that chapter, and I'm a big fan of, I mean, I, I use yeah. a lot of very storytelling. Stories are great in the book, but when I talk about definitely recommend. So it's not an academic, kind yeah. of, you know. Very readable, very engaging, very <laughs> relevant. Yep. Yeah, right, right the way I talk. You know? Sure. <laughs> and that's what we, that's what we want to read, I think. Right, um, right. So just because it's a business book doesn't mean it has to be boring. Right. right. Um, and the opening story there is about this eight-year-old kid uh, who got in uh, a car with his, I think, five-year-old or six-year-old sister mm -hmm. and drove to McDonald's because he was hungry for a burger Right. <laughs> and went to the drive-thru window. Yep. And when he got to the drive-thru window, the people there thought they were being pranked. And when they realized they weren't, they called the cops and the cops came and, uh, you know, the kid was crying because he realized he was in trouble. <laughs> and as they started to ask him about the story and they called his parents and they interviewed people who saw him driving and all the witnesses were like, yeah, he obeyed all the traffic laws. He stopped at the stop sign. <laughs> like he did it perfectly. Sure. And when they interviewed uh, him afterwards and then they talked to the police officer, the police officer said, um, yeah, the kid was hungry. His parents were asleep. So he went on YouTube. He watched a five minute video on how to drive. Then he was tall enough, obviously, to reach the pedals. So yeah. he got in the car, took his sister with him because she was hungry too, and they just drove. Right. And that's the world we live in where you expect to be able to learn how to drive in a five-minute YouTube video. Right, right. Like, so, like, that's light-speed learning. So, like, you think about that mentality now applied to someone who's going to then go into, like, a four-year education. Sure. Right? And what they expect to learn and how they expect to learn it. Right. Um, is is really interesting. Yeah, and even the collision of <laughs> collision. You see, we're talking about a, a kid <laughs> right. driving, and I, I, I just, he, he didn't collide. No either. collisions. He was good. Uh, he and was just to good. be clear, uh, trending in education, we don't endorse uh, children under age going to YouTube and learning how to drive that way. Although it's a great, at least twelve. It's a great story. Uh, you know, a lot of our <laughs> listeners tend to be, uh, you know, twelve or under. 
and if you are, please don't learn how to drive on YouTube. It's a great story. Uh, and, it, and it actually provokes a lot of thinking. But like that, that frame of reference is colliding with the historical higher ed and even K-12 learning constructs, which are more maybe an industrial model where we're trying to one size, one size fits all education, right? Uh, where, you know, you need four years of higher ed to walk away with uh, an undergraduate degree. When, if the amount of time you were spent, you spent learning in a traditional higher ed setting, instead you were spending with light speed learning in many different uh, modes you might get more return on your time if you were able to explore that new mode. So like, what does that mean for, uh, for higher education and for more established educational entities? Like what's, is there, is there a takeaway there for for them? I mean, I I think there's a couple. I mean, one is um, the expectation is that uh, the learning is going to be practical in Mm -hmm. some way. Yep. Um, And, that there's going to be a way to visually uh, learn it Yep. because of how popular videos and visuals are. Sure. And <clears throat> that it's going to be optimized for time. Mm-hmm. And those are all factors that don't mean that every, I mean, I'm not suggesting that classes should be five minutes long on YouTube now. Sure. Um, but that's a mentality that I think that any educator, I mean, when I teach my classes, sure. Um, on storytelling and speaking, like I know that students are walking in having learned some things in that way. Right. And so the more you understand about that mentality, Mm -hmm. um, the more you can tailor the way that you teach to, um, to how people want to learn without doing what a lot of professors end up doing, which is just complaining about how those crazy kids today can't pay attention to anything. All they need, you know, all they can do is watch YouTube. Right. 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 And like, that's just uh, shifting the blame because you're not willing to evolve your teaching methods. Right. And you're saying, well, these kids today don't learn how they used to. Well, guess what? You know, times are changing. Like people never learn the way they used to. Sure. Uh, And it's your job as a professor, I think, to, to keep up with that and find ways to be engaging. Right. And not, uh, resort to just showing five minute YouTube videos. I, mean, I think there's a better way than that because, you know, at the end of the day, like there are other ways to to teach that augment on that because there's no, there's technical knowledge, right? I press this pedal, I go, I press this pedal, I stop. Right. But that doesn't mean you fully understand all the nuances of actually driving. Right. And it, it almost reminds me of, you know, Bloom's taxonomy and other ways to think about uh, levels of learning and levels of processing. At which point do you need, uh, is it very transactional and almost short form where I just need to know, I need to learn how to poach an egg. Yeah. I'm probably not going to go to uh, a class at my local community college to learn how to poach an egg. I'm going to go to YouTube. However, if I want to earn, if I want to understand the history of intellectual thought in Western society, I'm probably not going to go to YouTube or like, how do I sort of call through the sea of, of returns I'll get on a YouTube search, for example, for like, you know, contemporary intellectual history as an example. And like, what's challenging, I think frequently is that the learner is somewhat left alone in terms of how she can best navigate it. It's different if you're, if you're in a class, you have you have an instructor who will help sort of guide you through this. Um, But I think there's an interesting space that we're in where like, I think your orientation to look outside, look into other industries, um, understand new media and media trends. Is that something that you think uh, university professors and other adjuncts like yourself can benefit from like that, sort of external orientation and understanding what's going on outside. Is that something you can incorporate into when you're teaching a class? And is that a recommendation that you would make to, to other educators? Uh, you know, what, what works for me, I mean, I'm an adjunct professor, so obviously I teach part-time. Sure. And then the rest of the time I'm off kind of speaking and consulting and, and doing recording uh, podcasts, recording podcasts with sure. you and hanging out. And yeah. yeah. All those sorts of things. Sure. But, so my frame of reference is teaching in that way. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think I'm the guy to tell someone else how to teach. I mean, if you're a full-time professor and that's what you love to do, sure. um, and you have things that I don't really have, like office hours where you're available to your students and things like that. I mean, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm there and then I, I head out. Right, right, right. right. Um, so it's not entirely kind of apples to apples. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's huge value in being able to uh, see what's happening in the real world. Yeah. Uh, but I think that that's not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily require you as a, you know, if it happens to be a full-time professor or a full-time student versus a part-time student, right? I mean, same situation. Sure. Right. Somebody who's working while they're getting their degree versus somebody who's going to school full-time. Right. I think both, I mean, you just have to be a curious person. I don't think that you necessarily need to do one or the other. Mm -hmm. um, I think you should do what works for you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not the uh, education whisperer, like. <laughs> you know, Rats, I thought, gonna... I thought we had the answer coming. <laughs> I'm not gonna Shoot. like, I'm not, right. the, I'm not the guy who goes on a diet and then tells you not to eat a donut. Like, <laughs> that's not my style. <laughs> right, right, right. But I mean, I, I guess the, the outward looking orientation and also like the, the, the recommendation to folks who do want to be able to think differently and to empathize in new ways, that's a broader recommendation that I do I do hear from you, which yeah, is like you break you, free of your frame. Totally. I mean, even to the point of, I mean, the, the educational system forces you down a certain path where you choose your major. Correct. And, you know, that's the perfect kind of crystallization of that. Right. right? Um, right. And there are some people who choose a uh, minor that is totally different. And there's some people that choose the major and then they choose the minor that will supplant the major so that they get a better job. Mm -hmm. And really what they're doing is they're following their head and not their heart. Right. And I think when you're in school to learn, sure. I mean, follow your head and do the degree that you think is going to set you up for your life. I mean, your life is your life and you have to be able to get a job and, you know, make some money. Sure. Right. But at the end of the day, I mean, I'm sitting here as a, a successful author who's written five books and I graduated with a degree in Irish poetry and uh, I followed what I loved sure. and I did uh, marketing in school and I ended up getting a career in that um, after waiting tables for six months after leaving school, you know, <laughs> so like our pads are always yeah. uh, the way that they are. And, and so I don't think I would look back on any of that and say, Oh man, I wish I did this. I wish I did that. Like, whatever. Yeah. I mean, you end up where you, where you end up and you just gotta, um, be happy with that. And then, uh, and then know that who you are today doesn't necessarily mean you have to be the same person tomorrow. Yeah. And, uh, and what about just cultivating that curiosity in general? So like both from the perspective of the learner and also a lot of our listeners are educators or educational thought leaders. Um, can curiosity be taught? And what level of um, experience do you have sort of evangelizing your process to help others sort of evolve maybe their way of thinking to be able to, uh, to understand what's happening outside and sort of motivate folks to, uh, to sort of flex their curiosity muscles so that they continue to um, to sort of develop their their maturity as thinkers is that is that something yes, yes. i mean I, I think you having that curiosity and and being willing to commit to it uh is huge um i think that i remember it was a couple of years ago i did an event for a, a small group of entrepreneurs like less than 100 entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and in order to be in the audience in that room you had to have at least founded two successful businesses that had made over a million dollars. Okay. So very financially successful people. Sure. And they were doing a, some polling in that group. And one of the questions they asked people was, um, how much money do you spend annually on self-development? Mm -hmm. So like books, training, events, conferences. Yep. And they gave a couple of like um, budget ranges. So they said, you know, under $5,000, nobody raised their hand. Mm. Under 10000 nobody raised their hand. 20000 uh, a few people raised their hand. Most people spent between 20000 and $30,000. Wow, yeah. That was like the major range. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I really, that, that really struck me because uh, these were people who were already successful running multi-million dollar businesses, and yet they're spending this much money to go to events to learn right. and get better. And I remember at the time I was, uh, 
yeah, I mean, I still do like professional speaking. I get paid to speak, right? Sure. And uh, at the same time, I was teaching a public speaking class at mm. Georgetown. Mm-hmm. And while I was teaching this class and getting paid uh, really well to go speaking, I spent the weekend at a speaker training program, which I personally paid a little over $10,000 to go to. Interesting. To become a better speaker. Yep. And when I came back from that and I went to my class, I told them about it, not to impress them with how much money I spent or, or you know, through <laughs> into something like that. Sure. But to illustrate to them that you can be a professor at Georgetown University and a professional speaker making, you know, five figures speaking and still invest in being better. Right. And that's a choice, right? I mean, I don't have to do that. I sure. can just be like, oh, I'm a great speaker already. And, you know, and I can just coast and, and yeah. you know, do what I do and be happy that I get paid for it. Yeah. But you have to choose to get better. Right? Yes. And that's not necessarily the same thing as curiosity, but it is uh, investing in learning. Yeah. And it's not about the degree at that point, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I already have my degrees. Sure. It's about getting better at the things that you uh, want to do. Yeah, for sure. I've talked about it as almost uh, an intellectual motor, you know, like yeah. where they talk about motor guys in, in basketball <laughs> or whatever, like yeah. a guy who just like sort of still has that hustle component. If you have that hustle component about your desire to learn, and it reminds me of, you know, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, all these guys are saying uh, they spend at least five hours a week learning. And like a lot of like the real luminaries in the world these days are not done. Elon Musk is still learning. You know, Bill Gates is spending five hours a week. You're taking uh, public speaking courses, even though you're an established public speaker. That aspect of the world, I think, has changed. And that's why, from an educational perspective, it's really interesting in that we're all continuing to learn. Uh, The CEO of... um, Forget the name of the company. The what's the WD forty? Is that the name of it? Uh, That's a uh, product. I think the company behind it's probably different. But. Yeah, but that that guy. Yeah. Who and I'll find. We'll credential this properly. Uh, but but he he his quote was: "Are you learning as fast as the world is changing?" And. Mm-hmm. I think that's extremely relevant uh, when you look at your book, where like in some ways, uh, the trends are accelerating. Yeah, and you know, uh, my favorite quote uh, from the book, which which you know, is uh, from Isaac Asimov. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you know him uh, or of him, you probably know him as a science fiction writer. Right. Um, but he wrote all sorts of other stuff. I mean, he wrote uh, fairy tales. He wrote a guide to every Shakespearean play ever written. Mm. He wrote a 800-page guide to reading the Bible. Wow. Yeah. He was prolific. And prolific. He wrote more than 300 books. Like, at his prime, he was, right, he was publishing about 15 books a year. Wow. That yep. was how, you know, he was. And so when people asked him, like, you know, how do you get all this information? What he said was, I'm not a speed reader. I'm a speed understander. Mm-hmm. And that really struck me. And I put that in the book because I just remember that as this beautiful call to not consume everything, mm-hmm. to be selective, but to try and focus on understanding, mm. on getting the insight instead of just consuming. Yeah, because there's a lot of people who are like, I read 50 books a year, sure, you know, or I read 70 books a year, right? And that's great. I mean, if you read that many books, like that's great. But are you taking away something from those books? Yes. I'd rather you read half a book a year, right? Or no books, right? And at least get some insights that actually are useful for you. Yeah, um, because you may not be a book reader, and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, but the problem is we go on like LinkedIn or whatever and we see like Elon Musk reads totally. this many books and we're yes. like, oh man, I got to like do what he does. Right. Right. But that's not like be you. Don't right. Be like you be you. Do you. Like right. that's good. <laughs> it's right. good. If you're a book person, be a book person. I mean, I'm not saying don't read books and definitely read my books. Like, right. I guess, you know, Please. Yeah. I love books. Books sure. are great. Right. Um, but learn the way you learn. Like if you're, uh, you know, I remember I was in um, Brazil for an event mm-hmm. and um, they, uh, now I'm going to mix up which was which, but between Rio and um, Sao Paulo, mm-hmm. in one city, they, to greet each other, they kiss once on the cheek and in mm. the other city, they kiss twice. Right. So I watched people, I observed what they did and then I knew immediately that, okay, in this city, I kiss people twice on the cheek and in this city, I kiss once on the cheek and right. I started doing that and people right. were um, amazed because right. no foreigner ever does that. Sure. Now I didn't study a book on how to be awesome in Brazil. Right. I just watched what people did and I did the same thing. Sure. I mean, anyone can do that. It's yeah. just a question of like keeping your 
brain open and paying attention. That's, you know, I'm, I'm ready to, to, to find a YouTube video of how to be awesome in Brazil, by the way. Now that you just, just <laughs> I thought just you were going to say you're ready to kiss some Brazilians. <laughs> that too. It, 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 it all, it all works. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's just a fascinating time to be in like learning and media because like the ways in which you can learn and the types that we have, it's not, it's no longer an access problem for those of us who understand the tools that are available to us. It's more of a selection and focus problem. How do I actually find what I need and how do I understand myself as a learner? Like even in the case of books, I've now talked about whether I've read something or whether I listened to it. Um, and I process information differently when I listen to a book versus when I read it. And like, I'm now making more thoughtful choices to your point about, you know, this is the type of thing I should listen to. This is the type of thing I should read traditionally. And should I read, I've also started reading in print more to get away from screens just because I'm trying to force myself to let go of, even though it's right over here, to let go of my, my iPhone. So like the, the level of choice that's available to a learner can be somewhat overwhelming, but that's where uh, fortunately there's, there's podcasts like this and there's conversations like the one we're having where we're trying to figure out where, where things are headed so that you know, learners can make the right choices for themselves to understand how to get the learning that they need. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the one thing I will say specifically about books, because I've just seen this over and over again with people, mm. um, because we get trained to do one thing in school, which is totally useless when you go into the real world, which is we get trained when we start these books that we have to finish them. Mm -hmm. And in the real world, if you read a book and you either are not getting anything from it or you kind of get the big idea mm -hmm. halfway through, yep. you can stop. Yeah. It's okay. Right. You don't have to finish every book that you start. Yes. And if you can't give yourself permission for it, I will give you permission. <laughs> That's as good. An author. That's nice. <laughs> Cause you know, somebody has got to say it, right? right? Because otherwise we have all this pressure to like, Oh man, I finished it. And I, right. you know, I love the ideas and I love this, but like I couldn't quite finish the whole thing on my you know beach vacation or whenever sure. I was reading it. And now I'm like, I, feel, I have all this like guilt and shame associated with not finishing the book. And I'm like, let go of that. Yeah. Like, you don't need that in your life. Yeah. Like, it's okay. If you read a little bit of the book, like, Great. Right. If you haven't started the book, even though you meant to, and it's out on your shelf for four years, you know, that's fine too. Like, sure. you know, don't put that on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. We could go, we could go into depth on that. I, I do want to be conscious of time. And uh, we haven't talked about a, a couple of your trends that I thought were also interesting. I'd see them as kind of related um, enlightened consumption and brand stand, I yeah. think are, are almost like two sides of a similar trend um yes can you talk a little bit about maybe manipulated outrage while we're at it because i guess <laughs> like they all seem uh just the zeitgeist has really changed with uh you know the 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 trump administration and the level of uh divisiveness around the election and how that has sort of become more sort of just central to how we all are operating in in 2018 but can you you talk a little bit about your recommendations around uh you know, enlightened consumption and how, how brands should think about taking a stand and how the world has really fundamentally changed maybe in the last couple of years. Whereas people who watch trends, it's important to not lose sight of the fact that the world feels meaningfully different than maybe it felt a couple of years ago. It, it does. Um, as someone who spends his career in brand marketing mm -hmm. uh, for a long time, the counsel of any reputable PR person would be, don't have a point of view. Don't take a stand on anything because right. you don't want to alienate anybody. Right. Just, you know, uh, keep quiet. Right. If you're a brand mm -hmm. and the world around that has changed. Um, it's become a necessity in some cases for brands to take a stand. And so more and more you see that happening, whether it's with brands kind of giving out, bonuses because of a tax credit or mm -hmm. brands that are you know, like CVS deciding to stop selling cigarettes mm -hmm. or brands saying we're going to hire these people or we're going to treat them in this way. REI, uh, REI saying get, get on outside Friday. on Black yeah. Friday. Yep. Right. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so these are like, you know, big visible things that become part of the identity of a brand and more and more we're seeing them across the board. Right. 
The flip side of it, which you mentioned, is enlightened consumption, which means I, as a consumer, am not just looking at, is this a good product? I'm mm -hmm. also looking at where was it made? Is it ethically produced? Is right. it, you know, what, how much energy is consumed in it getting from where it went, where it was made to my house or mm -hmm. to my store? Mm -hmm. And making my decision to purchase or not purchase based on all of those things. Right. Uh, the other trend uh, that you mentioned, manipulated outrage, um, is a little bit different. That one sort of describes uh, this. The best way to describe it is if you ever watch or or are forced to like be around when evening news is on. Sure. And all of the stories are the same. What you don't know about your shoelaces that could kill you. <laughs> Tonight at 6.30, <laughs> right? And you're like, come right. on. <laughs> Does right. the world really need this? No. Is that you're, that's, um, you're making that example up, right? There's nothing I need to worry about. Uh, there probably is. <laughs> okay, you better good, Google good. it just, yeah, to be safe, just to be safe because I'm sure there's been a story. Or wear loafers. Some or wear loafers. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, at some yeah. point. Yeah. But, you know, really the, the idea here is two-pronged. One is that there's a business model for outrage, mm -hmm. uh, which is people are making money based on you feeling outraged. Yes. And they're, so they're trying to make you more outraged. Sure. Because the more outraged you are, the more you pay attention. Yep. And everybody knows in media, the hardest thing to get is your attention. Sure. And so if they focus on outrage, then they know you're paying attention and therefore they're going to make money on the impressions and the eyeballs and the advertising and all that. Yep. The other side of it is in this political climate, there are more and more people who feel like it's their job to be outraged. Yep. And if you identify outrage as a part of your identity, yep. then you increasingly become unable to compromise or understand someone who doesn't think the way that you think. Yep. Because you got to maintain, it's like a buzz. Sure. Right? You're like you got to maintain the outrage buzz. Yeah. Otherwise it's like you a, feel like you're not doing your civic duty. Yeah, even like the neurochemistry of... Uh, the attention economy is something they talk about. Like you, we're actually uh, like our, our reptile brain is getting a hit uh, right. when we're outraged and when we're validated then by our echo chamber. You know what I mean? Like that whole trend right. seems um, very on point and also um, almost something like what I like about the way you talk about trends and uh, definitely, you know, in case you haven't heard uh, listeners, we're, we're definitely recommending this book. I think it's a good, it's a good way to sort of stay abreast of where the world is heading. So, uh, so credit to you for, for the work you've done. But um, what I like is you frequently have what does this mean to me? What should I do? Yeah. It's not just I'm observing this trend, but you're actually recommending to brands and to individuals here's what this means to you. And here's how, what you can take away from this trend. Yeah, it's a, um, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, every uh, chapter is, uh, that has a trend focus. So, you know, each trend is a chapter in the middle of the book. And at the end of every chapter, there are some tips and suggestions for like, okay, if this is a trend, what do you do about it? Right. How do you succeed um, in this world where this trend is taking place? Yeah, and in the case of manipulated outrage, as we're, we're wrapping up and there's the, like sort of the, some of the dire components of the world we're all living in in, uh, in 2018, uh, do you have recommendations for individuals uh, in terms of how to sort of find the signal within the noise and find uh, some, some independent, uh, you know, places of refuge or ways to sort of navigate the complexity of modern life. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, um, one that hopefully everybody has heard before, but just in case I will uh, say it, when you see a headline on Facebook, uh, actually read the article before yeah. sharing it. Right. Because a lot of outrage is totally manufactured based on headlines. Sure. And nobody reads the post. They just share the headline. Mm -hmm. And don't be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, if you're going to share something, read the article until the end. Right. Um, and then share it if you really have a point of view on it. Right. Uh, but read it till the end. I mean, sure. you owe it to the world and you owe it to yourself because um, dumb people share stuff that they haven't read. Right. And you don't need to be a dumb, dumb person. Yep. Um, and you're and, better than that. And maybe it's true. And this, this means you. <laughs> Inspirational <laughs> speech over. <laughs> but, but, that, but then related, related to that, I guess, is also like look for, look for a different uh, source on the yeah, same Yeah, I mean, topic, then it's, right? you know, you know yeah, I mean? look at, uh, I mean, the tough part is, I mean, you can find almost any point of view on any story. Sure. Right? Um, so yes, there is going to be bias in media. Sure. Um, I think looking at sources that don't have a, 
uh, so-called horse in the race. Right. Um, so, you know, for example, if it's political news, look at like BBC or Al Jazeera or like sure. something that's outside of America. Right. Um, you can often get a perspective that you just never get within America, no matter which side you're it's great point. looking at. Great point. Yep. So go international would sure. be one tip. Uh-huh. Um, I think the other would be um, look at um, people whose take and whose opinion you have some faith in uh-huh. and hopefully they're not uh, cable news commentators right um, because uh, across the board those um, commentators are pretty difficult to trust i imagine yeah yep. and maybe uh we usually recommend stay out of the comments section anywhere like stay away, <laughs> okay. stay away yeah, from comments or there's um <laughs> yeah i used to uh counsel brands on youtube and one of the things I used to tell them is the dumbest thing you can do is allow comments on a YouTube video. Right. Because YouTube videos, comments have only ever been idiotic, racist, ill-informed, useless. Right. Um, I've never seen a good YouTube comment. Right. Ever right. In my life. Yeah. So there is no reason anyone should ever be reading a YouTube comment. And if you have videos, I don't understand why anyone would ever want to enable comments yeah. on a YouTube video. Right. Unless you're just like a, a masochist and you like pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess the last thought maybe related is like seek out places where the discourse is less outraged and less manipulated. So like seek out, conversations like this one where i don't think either of us have been overly outrageous or manipulative in this conversation not yet not yet although maybe it's just heating <laughs> up but um but i but i do think there are other modes of discourse that are out there you just need to be looking for them and uh and what i what i really appreciate about your work is that you're trying to help folks find those sources and you are one of those sources so um so i definitely appreciate the time uh, you've been able to to spend with us today. Do you have any uh, any final thoughts uh, to share with our listeners as we uh, as we wrap up uh, this week? No, I think we covered uh, we covered a lot. Um, the only thing I'll I'll say is uh, going back to where we started. Um, I do try and be as uh, virtually approachable as I can, uh-huh. um, and so there's many ways to uh, connect with me through social media or even through through email. Yes. And um, sometimes with travel, it takes me a, a little bit of time to get back to people. Sure. Um, but I always do. Right. Uh, and so I love to hear from uh, folks if there's something I can do to be helpful for someone. Uh, I always try and do it. Yeah. And I will personally attest to uh, the the nice guy component of your uh, your introduction. You You have been great in terms of being available and someone who I can reach out to. And I know that that's definitely something... Uh, about who you are. Uh, so I would encourage our listeners to, we'll, we'll share out more information about how to get in touch with Rohit, but, uh, but he's definitely someone who's, uh, who's very open and ready to engage in more folks to learn more and, uh, and help more folks uh, sort of evolve their thinking. So, uh, so with that, uh, thanks again uh, for, for joining us. Uh, we'll share more information to our listeners about, uh, about Rohit's uh, body of work. And I'm sure uh, this probably isn't the last time uh, we'll be engaging with you uh, through this and other formats. So, so thanks again for taking the time. Thank you.